Well, we're uh, pleased to have you all here in attendance this morning. It's nice to look out and to see several visitors here with us today. I had the pleasure of meeting one lady that knows my brother and sister-in-law from his most recent coaching stop, so that was an unexpected pleasure. But whoever you are, wherever you're from, visitor or member, we're pleased that you're here with us today and hope that the time we spend here together will be uh, beneficial and strengthening and edifying for all of us. When I was in high school playing football, there was a sign painted on the wall of the varsity locker room. And as a matter of a fact, that same message was in the junior high gym. So you can think of it as a program motto of sorts, I suppose. And the sign said, what you do is so loud, I can't hear what you say. Reminds us of a truth we all know. Your actions speak louder than words. I read about a group of young adults discussing the subject of how they say I love you. How can people say they love one another? And they talked about various different things in their own experience. One girl related how her fiancé, now her husband, had proposed to her. He put on his best suit, and unexpectedly, while she was out with several of her girlfriends, he walked up, and he took her by the hand and hit a knee and asked if she would marry him. Another mentioned that when she was growing up, her father would show his love for her mother by whenever she had had a bad week and she was out of the house for a time, he would clean up the whole house as best he could while she was gone. Another boy mentioned that when he was younger, uh, his mother would write little notes to him of love and encouragement, and she'd put it on the banana in his lunchbox to take to school every day. And someone else mentioned that one year her father had sold his prized shotgun just so she could have the money to buy college textbooks. You see, you can say I love you in a lot of different ways. But the point of all of this is that love is conveyed much more through our actions than it is merely through our words. With that in mind, I want us to continue looking at some facets of love in that great chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13. We want to read verse number 4 together this morning. Paul says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It's those last two phrases we want to consider together this morning. Love does not boast. It is not arrogant or puffed up, or proud, your translation might say. Scripture shows us again and again that God often had to humble people in order to equip them for his service. Joseph was a proud young man. He lorded over his brothers the fact that he was the favorite and the dreams that he'd had of them bowing down and serving him. So before Joseph could be prime minister of Egypt, God humbled him by having him sold into slavery, spending time in prison. Before Moses, who grew up in Pharaoh's palace, could serve as the great leader and deliverer of Israel, he spent time being humbled as a fugitive from justice, a shepherd in the land of Midian. 
before Saul of Tarsus, who was a, a rising young star, a Pharisee with a bright future ahead of him, before he could become the Apostle Paul and the writer of the bulk of the New Testament, he had to be humbled by a blinding flash of light and the voice of the risen Lord on the Damascus Road. It's that same Paul who writes to us here and says that humility is integral to love. And yet, humility is often disparaged today. I read a few years ago in the publication First Things a review of a book called The Narcissism Epidemic. Now, I haven't read the book, but according to the review, Two psychologists wrote this book, and they took data from 37,000 college students across several decades, and it indicated that narcissistic personality traits have risen dramatically in the past three decades. And here's a quote from the book. The symptoms of narcissism are vanity, materialism, an inflated sense of one's own specialness or importance, antisocial behavior, Little interest in emotionally close or unselfish relationships, along with a lack of empathy. empathy. Exaggerated overconfidence and a strong sense of entitlement. Sound like anyone you know? They lay the blame for much of this on the self-esteem movement that has infected psychology, education, even a lot of the theology in megachurches. You know, if you go and you buy some of the most popular Christian books for sale in Barnes & Noble or you watch some of the most popular televangelists, what you'll find is that their message is essentially a really positive version of uh, self-help with a thin Christian veneer. And it's essentially that you're awesome and God thinks that you're awesome. Why don't you recognize that? That's the opposite of the humility that Paul enjoins here. Humility is a distinctively Christian virtue. And yet, we're not a humble people. And we often have a very difficult time learning the lessons of humility. But if we're going to have the love that God wants us to have for one another, if we're going to have the type of relationships with one another that God wants us to have, then it's imperative that we understand why Paul says love does not boast. It is not arrogant. And we need to begin to develop that sort of love in our lives. So let's consider some of the problems that are created by pride together for a few minutes and talk about why pride is inimical to love. The first problem is that pride prevents us from considering others. Have you ever met someone who thinks that they know it all? Doesn't matter what the subject is, they have an opinion on it. And they're not shy about telling you what that opinion is. And they don't listen to anyone else who may even be an expert on that because they already have all the answers. And you know, those people who think they know it all are really annoying to those of us who do, aren't they? 
Maybe you've heard the old story of the fellow who'd just taken a first aid class and he was really proud of his accomplishment. And wouldn't you know it, just as soon as he'd completed that almost, he went out and he saw someone injured in an accident. There was a woman attending to him. And so he did what his first aid training said. He went up and he cleared everyone out of the way. He pushed the woman out of the way and he said, stand aside, I, I've just taken a first aid class. I know exactly what to do. And he started treating the injured person as best he could. The woman stood by there for a moment. Finally, she said, when you get to the part of your training that says, call the doctor, I'll be right here waiting. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. When all we're thinking about is ourselves, and our own ambition, and how smart that we are. Pride can hinder those relationships because it creates a lack of consideration, a lack of appreciation for other people. Secondly, pride provokes arguments. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, the King James Version puts it, by pride cometh contention. The NIV says pride breeds quarrels. So you think about those two know-it-all people, or you think about a know-it-all person, you put two of them together in the same room, what do you have? You have the irresistible force and the immovable object, and it is inevitable that they're going to butt heads, and an, an argument is going to happen, and it's probably going to go on and on and on because no one is going to be willing to give in and admit even the slightest possibility that they might not be right. In Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes there about the new life that we're to live in, as Christians. In verse 1, a lot of you will know this passage. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He tells us in verse number 2 that we're not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then throughout the rest of that chapter and going on through into the next chapters, he expounds on what that new life consists of. And he says in verse number 16, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I like the way that the Living Bible paraphrases this. It says, don't try to act big and don't think that you know it all. Pride provokes Arguments, arguments that could be easily avoided if we were just willing to swallow our pride. Thirdly, pride prevents real fellowship. People who are proud won't allow themselves to be seen as they really are. It's all about putting on appearances. It's all about maintaining an image. It's all about living in a way that you think will please other people rather than living as you really are. And that can be absolutely exhausting to always try to pretend that you're something you're not. We might consider a verse that's familiar to most of us here in a little bit different way. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. John writes, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. 
Now, we usually go on and talk about the fact that the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all of our sins, and, and that's true. But I want to focus on this part, that we have fellowship with one another. If we walk in the light, then we have real fellowship with one another. What does light do? It reveals. It discloses. It uncovers. So if we really are walking in the light of God, I don't have to hide anything from you anymore. And you don't have to hide anything from me anymore. We can be open. We can be vulnerable. We can admit our faults and our failings. And we can have fellowship with one another because we walk in the light together. I think about James' admonition, James chapter 5 and verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. When James is talking here about confessing our sins, he's not talking primarily about what we think of today. That is, when in a few minutes I'm going to extend the invitation, we're going to sing a song, and we want you to come down to the front and confess whatever sin in your life. And that's not what he means. He's talking about on a day-to-day -day basis, living in fellowship with one another, saying, Brother, I'm struggling with this. I'd like you to pray for me. Or, sister, I, I have a, a real problem with this issue, and I, I'd like you to try to help me with that. That's the sort of fellowship that we're talking about. That's what we should be living out as Christians. But how many of us are willing to swallow our pride to the point that we admit that we have faults and we have flaws and we need people to help us with them? We need the prayers of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need them to help us overcome temptation. Fourthly, pride postpones reconciliation. If people are proud, then they're usually not going to be willing to compromise. They're not going to be willing to admit that they were wrong. They're not going to be willing, in some cases, to extend forgiveness. They won't find that common ground where we can find agreement. In any relationship, if we're not willing to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. If we're not willing to admit at times that we were wrong, that we made mistakes, if we're not willing to show that we love one another and that we desire forgiveness and we extend that toward one another, then that reconciliation can never take place. It's no wonder that Paul writes then, love does not boast. It is not arrogant. It's clear that we need to develop humility in our lives, but that doesn't come easily for us. So I'd like for us to consider some ways that we can cultivate humility in our lives. First of all, we need to acknowledge our mortality. Over and over and over again, the Bible reminds us of the brevity of human life. Your life is a vapor mist, a fog that appears for a little while and then it, it vanishes away. The sun just burns it off. 
It's the grass of the field that withers and dies. Some of you probably have a keener conception of this than I do at this point in your lives, but I've experienced it even myself, and the older that you get, the more and more you experience it, but some of you in particular will identify with this. One time, you were young, weren't you? And it seemed like you had your whole life stretching before you. You had plenty of time to accomplish all your goals, all your hopes, all your dreams. It was all going to work out. But as you get older, you start to come to grips with your own mortality. Those years pass faster and faster, and it seems that the older that you get, the faster and faster that they pass. Scripture teaches us that our bodies are made of the dust of the ground. One day they're going to return to dust. And that is a humbling thing, to think about the fact that the bodies that we've pampered and taken care of and that we feed and we clothe and we go to the doctor to get checked out, one day it's going to be dirt. And a hundred years from now, give or take, except for maybe some of the very youngest people here in this room, most of us, nobody's even going to remember your name. Think about that. That is a humbling thing. And so the first step in developing humility is to remember our mortality. Life is short. One day we'll return to the dust. Secondly, remember our fallibility. You make mistakes. And that's okay because I make mistakes too. We do things that we shouldn't. We say things that are stupid. We do things that are embarrassing at times. I think about the story, you may have heard this, about the fellow who was attending a musical. And as he was sitting there listening to the soprano sing her solo, he leaned to the guy next to him and he said, that's just awful. The guy said, that's my wife. And he said, oh, well, you know, I, I didn't mean to say anything negative about her voice. It's excellent. It's just the song, the material. It's all wrong for her. I wrote it. <laughs> Sometimes we put our foot in our mouth like that. Sometimes we do things that are much more serious. And that's why Paul is so admirable, because he never glosses over his own flaws, his faults. He's always upfront about the fact that once he was a persecutor of the church. As he writes to Timothy, he calls himself the chief of sinners. Paul never hides that. He doesn't back away from it. It's all right to feel good about yourself. It's perfectly fine to consider your accomplishments. But we need to remember our failings too. That keeps us balanced. That keeps us humble. Third, we need to remember God's sovereignty. We need to remember that God is the one in charge. This is something that all people struggle with, but I think as Americans in particular, we have a problem here. Our cultural memory, our society, we value individualism. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. I know what I'm supposed to do. I've got the answers. You don't need to tell me. 
We certainly don't want to depend on anyone else. I can take care of myself. Self-reliance, that's at the core of being an American. But that won't fly in the spiritual realm. Each and every one of us must be willing to approach God and say, God, I can't do it on my own. I need your help. I cannot save myself. We need to throw ourselves upon God, His grace, that is His kindness and His mercy. We must admit that God's the one in control. He's sovereign over our lives. Only then will we be humble before God. Finally, we need to develop a real sense of being willing servants. I think of Jesus' brief summary of his own ministry. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came into this world to serve. And yet, we can be Christians for 10, 15 years, decades sometimes, and still be servees, for lack of a better term, rather than servers. How can we claim to follow Jesus and still expect everyone else to be serving our needs rather than trying to go out into the church and into the world and meet the needs of others? How can we claim we're followers of Christ and not be willing to gird ourselves with a towel and pick up the wash basin and wash one another's feet? The only way we can really develop that virtue of humility is by will, being willing, like Jesus, to pour ourselves out in service to others. And if we truly want to em emulate our Lord, if we truly want to be remade in His image, we'll imitate Him in His service. And He humbled Himself far more than any of us could imagine. I think of our text that was read a few moments ago from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, the kind of love that Paul's talking about can make a difference. And I know that it can make a difference because it already has made a difference. It's the type of love that God exhibited to us in Christ. And it can make a difference in our personal lives and our relationships too. So this morning I want you to ask yourself if Jesus Christ, the Lord of love, is the Lord of your life. Think of the most famous passage in all of the Bible, John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The next verse continues that God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. So if you haven't come to Him, if you haven't availed yourself of that humble, self-giving love that God's demonstrated in Christ, 
Won't you humble yourself and do it today? Put your faith, your trust in Him. Turn to God in repentance. Have your sins washed away in baptism and receive that gift of forgiveness of sins and be added to His people and have that promise of eternal life that God promised there in John chapter 3. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian. Have you loved Him as you ought? You know, loving Him means keeping His commandments. Do you do that? Or do you need to humble yourself, swallow your pride, and repent today? If we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.